Take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. The Hebrew title of the Psalms literally means praise songs. There are 150 of them. They're divided into five books, and at the end of every section or at the end of every book, it closes with a doxology of praise to God. This particular psalm, Psalm 46, is a song of vital faith, of robust faith, of a firm, resilient faith in the active presence of God among His people. He's not a distant despot sitting on a throne in some far-off remote place, untouched, uncaring, and unfeeling. In fact, in every stanza of this three-stanza song, it is affirmed repeatedly that God is actively present with His people. He's the subject of the psalm. He's mentioned 11 times in the few verses that are enumerated for us here. He's mentioned by various names. He's mentioned by various titles. The psalm opens with the, the name of God, and the psalm closes by reminding us that the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, is our fortress. He is indeed our refuge. He's called the Most High, El Elyon. He's called Jehovah, the one who was and is and is to come. The one who's entirely sufficient in and of himself, who's eternal and unchanging. And the psalm affirms that it's this God, the true and the living God, the fountain of living waters, the one who created and spoke the worlds into existence, the one who's upholding all things by the word of his power. It's this God, and there is no other, who is actively present with his people. The superscription above verse 1 indicates that this was intended for worship, both public as well as private worship. It's a song from the sons of Korah. It was delivered to the choir uh, master. It was delivered to the choir leader, the song leader, if you will. And there's even an indication of the pitch for the melody. And throughout the psalm, three times at the end of every stanza, there's this recurring punctuation designated selah. It could mean a couple of things. It could mean, at this point, sing and play with greater fervor and greater intensity. Or it could also mean, at this point, pause and think about and reflect on what you have just sung. Regardless of what it means, it affirms in every verse and every stanza that God is with us, that He's with us today, that He's with us tomorrow, that He's with us in this coming year. Would you listen as we read together Psalm 46, God's inspired and therefore inerrant and infallible word beginning in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. 
He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, that God, is our fortress. The grass withers and the flower fades. But indeed, the word of our God, that stands and abides and endures forever and ever. James Randi, also known as the Amazing Randi, has made both a name and quite a career by exposing psychic frauds, fakes, and charlatans. He documents some of those exposures in his book written a number of years ago called Flim Flam. One of the charlatans that he exposed was a so-called psychic by the name of Sue Cottrell from Meade, Kansas. She made a name for herself by appearing on The Tonight Show where she demonstrated to the amusement and the awe of watching people watching in the studio and those who happen to be up that late at my age. Uh, I'm not up that late. But those who might have been watching were awed. They were stunned by her extraordinary powers. She demonstrated her powers by an ordinary playing deck of cards which the host produced. She demonstrated those powers by repeatedly predicting which card would come next and where a certain card would be found. Well, the amazing Randy was amused himself, no uh, amateur magician, and so he issued a $10,000 challenge. He said, I'd like for you to repeat those same psychic powers in a controlled objective circumstance. And so Susie Cottrell took the man on his challenge. And um, in this controlled environment, she repeatedly failed miserably. For example, she was to predict the next card 82 times, and 82 times out of 82 times, she failed to predict it. In a series of different hands dealt, she was to identify which cards were being held in which hands. And 104 times out of 104 times, she missed it. Numerous occasions or numerous other tricks were produced or circumstances were produced. And each time, Susie Cottrell failed to make her predictions come true. Well, I can't predict anything about which card will surface. In fact, neither can you and neither you nor I can predict what will happen tomorrow, next week or next year. In fact, the scripture explicitly forbids us for living in such presumption. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, take no thought for tomorrow, sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. We don't borrow trouble from tomorrow. James for prohibits us from living presumptively, from presuming about what's going to happen next year. So none of us really knows what's going to happen the remainder of the day, tomorrow or next year. But what we do know is just as certain as black words on a white page that the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob is with us, that he is actively present with us as we go through the journey we called life. The certain God present with his people. The text says so repeatedly in every stanza. And it's good to know that that's the minor or or not the minor, but the major chord. The dominant note that is sounded in this psalm that God is present with his people. Because there's another theme underneath it. A minor note, a minor chord that's heard in the background of every stanza as well. And it could be summarized in a single word. The word is vulnerability, helplessness, exposure, insufficiency, 
inadequacy. It has a name poetically in the image of the psalm. For example, the psalmist in first, the first stanza expresses his vulnerability before creation by referring to the earth giving way, the mountains crumbling into the sea, which then in turn makes the seas roar and foam. In the second stanza, the psalmist pictures his vulnerability by referring to his surrounding environment. He's living in a hostile environment where nations are raging and kingdoms are tottering. And in the third stanza, the psalmist expresses his vulnerability by referring to implements of violence and war. He refers to bows and spears and chariots. And vulnerability has a name in your life as well. It's cancer. It's an unforeseen health diagnosis that shatters your world, that knocks you off balance, that rearranges your life and your schedule. It comes unforeseen, but it comes anyway with all of its attending loss of a sense of vitality and well-being. Maybe vulnerability is marital strain. The very fabric of your marriage is coming apart. And the vows, you know, the ones till death do us part, the bounds of those cords are being stretched to a breaking point. Maybe it's a family crisis. You didn't pick it. But you find yourself in the middle of some unplanned, strained relationships. And it's rearranging your emotions and your life. Or maybe it's financial strain. I was reading in yesterday's business section about the downturn of the housing market. And apparently some pundits are saying we're headed toward the worst reception, recession since 1991. Maybe you're faced with too little in the face of too much. And the red ink is turning to gray. And you're afraid that it's going to go to red. Or maybe it's the children from the early days of anxious nights and fractured sleep to watching that same child pack the car and back down the drive and how you wish you had more time, but now they're flying solo and you're concerned about the direction of their life and the decisions that they're making and suddenly you feel very out of control. Or maybe vulnerability is spelled death. The sense of having to say goodbye, that which Job calls the king of terrors, with all of its nagging sense of loss and lingering loneliness. Vulnerability has a name. It has a name in your house, and it has a name in my house, that which leaves us drained and tossing and turning at night. And in the midst of our vulnerability, whatever it may be, we hear the dominant chord, the major note, that God is actively present with us. The text asserts it in every circumstance, God present with his people. And what difference does that make? Well, the first stanza says it makes pretty substantial difference. For example, because God is with his people, we're assured of his all-sufficiency. If you and I were Hebrews and we were reading from the Hebrew text, the sufficiency of God is underscored by the very first word in verse 1. It's the word God translated from the Hebrew Elohim. It's a plural. It's not a reference to the Trinity veiled in the Old Testament so much 
as it's a plural in the sense of supremacy, sufficiency, and majesty. This is the God who created. This is the God who rules sovereignly and supremely over all things. This is God who is sufficient in and of himself. He is all sufficient for every circumstance and for every need. And the sufficiency is emphasized in two bold assertions in verse 1. First, the psalmist says that God is our refuge. That is, He's a, a shelter, a shield, a rock on which we stand. There are many things in your life and there are many things in my life that would compete for refuge status. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's money with all that it buys, with its sense of security, with its sense of the best schools and the best neighborhoods and the nice house and the nice reliable car. Maybe it's the sense of security that comes with having more than enough. Or maybe it's status. Maybe it's the job, the position of influence and power. Or maybe it's the refuge of substances, whether drugs or alcohol or food or whatever it may be. Or maybe our refuge is our work. We escape by going to work. We bury ourselves in the tasks. We numb the conscience by doing more. Or maybe it's recreation. We give ourselves to sports and fading athleticism, whatever. There are many substitutes and claimants for refuge. But you notice the text lists only one. It's not God plus something else. It's not God plus this or God plus that. It's God Elohim, the creator, the ruler, the sovereign Lord, who is our refuge. The availability of God is stressed in the fact that he's our strength. Not only is God himself strong, having all strength, but it's also in the fact that God imparts strength, that God pours His strength into our weakness. In fact, it's in our vulnerability. It's in our helplessness. It's in our weakness. It's in our exposure. It's in those raw moments of life that God is pleased to magnify His sufficiency and His strength. Isaiah 41 says that we're not to fear. It's the most repeated command in the Scripture given only to the people of God. Fear not, He says, for I am your righteousness and I will uphold you with my right hand. When you pass through the waters, they will not overflow you. When you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. And why is that, O God? Because I've redeemed you. Because you're mine. And because I have called you by your name. Oh, what sufficiency. These two Assertions, God is our refuge, God is our strength, converge to give the idea of all sufficiency. But what good is all sufficiency if it's not at hand, if it's not available? What good is it if God is some kind of distant despot, unfeeling and uncaring? And so the text immediately asserts and affirms the availability of God's sufficiency in the latter part of verse 1. He's a very present help in trouble. Present doesn't necessarily mean in and of itself that it's timely, but that God is available, that He is near to us, that He is near to the brokenhearted, that He comes to us and draws near to us in trouble of every kind, a broad term. 
everything we count on, everything we bank on, everything we live for can be turned upside down in a moment. It can all collapse in a moment. It can be washed away by the next straight line wind. It can be washed away by the impending lab report. It can be washed away as the company is bought and sold and you're laid off. And now as a middle-aged man, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere laterally that you can go. And so you have to go down and adjust your comfortable lifestyle downward. In trouble of every kind, the scripture says God is present. When everything we can count on and bank on collapses and crumbles beneath us. Terry Waite, an Englishman, an Anglican clergyman, found that to be so on January the 20th of 1987 when he was kidnapped, abducted by Islamic jihadists in a house in Lebanon. Waite spent the next 1,762 days in captivity. The first year he was chained to a radiator, carried around in a giant refrigerator, and in almost near solitary confinement. In his youth, Wade had memorized large portions of the common book of prayer. And so in that solitary confinement, God was pleased to sustain this man, though stripped of every resource, of every prop, of every refuge, of every outward strength. God was pleased to sustain him with himself. And Wade would say of himself inwardly, I was a very frightened and confused child. But in that environment, God was pleased to sustain him. The things we tend to rest on or hide behind, whether it's money, influence, status, family, jobs, health, or you name it, can be turned upside down in a moment. It can be turned upside down so easily. In the language of the psalmist, the mountains could give way. The earth could give way. The mountains could crumble. The sea could churn and foam. And the text says that even then we will not fear. And why is that? Because the God of heaven and earth, He's our refuge. He's our strength. And He's a very present help in the time of trouble. Selah. Pause and think about that. It means we have something more enduring than the earth. It means we have someone more enduring than the earth. It means we have someone more steady than the mountains. It means we have someone more mighty than the seas. We have God himself. God present with his people. What difference does it make? It makes a world of difference because he is our all-sufficiency. That's the first stanza. The second stanza, because God is with his people, we are assured of his redemptive presence. You say, well, God is present everywhere, isn't he? Isn't that what omnipresent means? Yes, it does. And there is a sense in which God is everywhere present. It's affirmed in both Testaments. Psalm 50 says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Proverbs 5 says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Psalm 139, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to the place of the dead, you're there. Yes, God is everywhere present. But there's also an even more remarkable sense in which God is uniquely, redemptively present with his people. That's what the psalm affirms in verse 4 and in verse 5. 
It says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. You see that? And watch this. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is said to dwell among His people uniquely. In verse 5, God is in the midst of her. And because of that, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. It's a leading promise in the Scripture. God present, uniquely, redemptively. Sustainingly so with his people. He calls Abraham and says, Abraham, go to a land that you know nothing about because I am with you. He repeats the same promise to the patriarchs Isaac and Jacob. He repeats the same promise to Moses and Joshua. Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and deliver my people. And Moses says, who or what am I that that I should do that? And the Lord says, I am with you. And Moses says, if they say, who is this God? What should I say? You tell them, I am that I am. Joshua leading God's people in the land of promise is given the same assurance. Joshua, I'm with you. He says to David as he ascends the throne of Israel, David, I'm with you. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David personalizes that in Psalm 23 for every generation of believers. That in the worst circumstances, the most unimaginable, the most traumatic experience of our lives, death itself, the rending of our families, the rending of our soul from our body. God says in Psalm 23, when I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. And why is that, David? Why is that, beloved? Because even there, you're with me. It's promised to Jeremiah and the prophets. It comes to full light in the incarnation. The one whom Isaiah predicted would be born of a virgin and whose name would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us, dwells among men in 1 John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. At His ascension in Matthew 28, Jesus says to beleaguered disciples, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. That is, you will never outrun or outlive the presence of the risen and reigning Christ. He is always with you. The apex of God's presence will someday be realized as Revelation 22 reminds us that God will finally, fully, and forever come to dwell in the midst of His people and all the glory of it. Until then, you and I have a foretaste and assurance of it because we have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of the living God who dwells in us and abides in us according to the promise of the Lord Jesus. Sandwiched between the upheavals envisioned in verse 3 and the uncertainties of verse 6 is the assurance of God's presence with us. I dwell in the midst of my people. I dwell in the midst of my people. And the text says for emphasis and for repetition in verse 7, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, the one who commands the host and the armies of heaven, the one who orders the orbits of the planets, who sustains the galaxies number without number. It's that God who is with us. A powerful God, yes, but a personal God because verse 7 says He's the God of Jacob. It's that God who is our security, our refuge, 
our high tower. What a gracious God He is. I mean, come on, folks. If He's the God of Jacob, the trickster, the deceiver, the supplanter, the duplicitous one, how much more is this God of all grace and mercy our God as well? Some commentators suggest the historical context of Psalm 46 is Sennacherib's besiege, uh, or his siege rather, of uh, Jerusalem. He's surrounding the city of Jerusalem during King Hezekiah's reign and he's squeezing the city down. And his emissaries come to Hezekiah's emissaries. You know, I'll have my people call your people kind of thing. And they come and they say, we're going to squeeze, literally, we're going to squeeze the life out of you. And if you'll pardon this crudity, this is what the text says, Isaiah 36, 37, 38. We're going to squeeze the life out of you until you drink your own urine and eat your own refuge. And what God is there who can deliver you out of our hands? And so Hezekiah takes their menacing letter and their threats. And he goes before God in the temple and he spreads it all out. And he says, oh God, you see this? You read this? You hear this? You know this? Are you not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Are you not a covenant-keeping God who keeps his word to his people? And God says, not an arrow will fly into this city. And overnight, the angel of the Lord went through the camp of the Assyrians. And by morning, by dawn's early light, 185,000 Assyrians were dead. Lord Byron, the Scottish poet, immortalized those words in the poem entitled, The Destruction of Sennacherib. And it closes with this, By the glance of the Lord, the Assyrians melted like snow. It's that God, beloved who is with us. Pause and think about that. God present with you this coming year in every event of life, present in the birth of your children, present as you walk down the aisle toward graduation and your future, present as you come down the aisle and your last name is changed into the love of the last name of the love of your life, changed as the company, God present with you as the company changes hands in every lab report, in every physical exam, and every diagnosis, and every move and relocation, this God goes with you and is present with you. And in the final stanza, because God is with His people, we can trust His ultimate purpose. There's an invitation in verse 8 to review the power of God in His works. Come behold or come see, come look at the works of the Lord. And, of course, the invitation is not just simply with the physical eye, although that would clearly be implied, but it's more than that. It's with the eyes of the heart see the works of God. Look at the works of God in creation. In every sunrise and every sunset, my wife Melinda for years has said, if God intended for you to see the sunrise, he'd have it come up at 8 in the morning. Well... With every sunrise and every sunset and on the cloudless starry night, you behold the awesome works of God. And every act of providence and every sustaining grace and every answer to prayer and every health restored and every wisdom imparted and every sin forgiven, you behold the works of God. John Flavel the Puritan said, though providence is best read by looking back. And you look back, listen, you look back over this past year. And you will see the hand of God. When I was a boy growing up, we sang a hymn at Thanksgiving. 
You may recall this. Some of you may recall this. I think it's the only time we sang it. Count your blessings. And it goes something like this. Yes, I will not sing it. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. The psalmist is inviting you to do that. Look over the past year and behold your God. Consider the works of God and redemption, how He gives life where none exists, how He gives sight where none exists, how He gives desire and appetite where none exists. And all of this marvelous power has a purpose. It is that God would exalt Himself. The Lord says and He affirms, I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth in every circumstance of your life. In every event of your life, in every turn of this planet's rotation, it is God's aim to exalt Himself in all of life. To make Himself all-sufficient and all-glorious and all-worthy. And there's an invitation at the end of the psalm in verse 10 to rest in this, to relax in the purpose. When you're in the middle of it, it's easy to lose sight of it. Listen, I can tell you from personal experience, it's easier to preach one sermon than it is to live ten. Or rather, it's easier to preach ten than to live one. But in the midst of all of this, verse 10 says, listen, listen, relax and rest in what God ultimately intends to do in your life and circumstance. God intends to exalt Himself. When our children were very, very small, I had a bicycle. Actually, it was given to Melinda, but I'm the one that principally rode it. It was a lady's bicycle. And um, I would put, it had, a, it had the, the, the infant seat, the child seat on the back of it. And uh, Jenny, our firstborn, I started with her. And when she was about uh, three years old, two years old, three years old, something, I'd put her in the back of that. And we would ride up to the park down College Street. In Martin, Tennessee, from 402 Walters. I did all the peddling. Jenny just sat back there and rode and looked around. We went to the playground where I pushed the merry-go-round while Jenny rode. I held Jenny while she went across the monkey bars. I was the power and balance in the seesaw as we did that. I was the wind beneath her wings as I pushed her in the swing. I was all the sufficiency, all the power... Jenny was the recipient and the benefit of the fun and the pleasure, the blessing of Dad's presence, while I supplied all the strength and all the labor. In a very similar way, listen, this psalm says that all the strength, all the wisdom, all the power, all the sufficiency is God's. Toward what end? Toward what end? That the Lord of hosts, the one who's all-sufficient, the God of Jacob, the gracious, merciful, patient God would be exalted in your life and my life. God is exalted by magnifying His sufficiency in our weakness, by showing up in our vulnerability, by exalting Himself with us in the crises and crucibles of life when He sustains us by His active presence. God is exalted by supplying our need out of a rich and endless reservoir of His sufficiency. Some years ago, a Psychic by the name of Sean David Morton predicted 24 major events to take place in 2004. 
He missed 23 of the 24. You want to know the one thing he got right? It's the very thing that you or I could have predicted. He predicted that there would be protests at the Olympic Games against George Bush and the Iraq War. Who could not have predicted that? He had a 4% accuracy rating. I am glad today, as you are, my heart is bursting with praise and thanksgiving and gratitude to God that you and I are not facing 2008 in our own strength and our own ability and our own sufficiency. That we're not dependent upon the refuge or the wisdom of men. But we have the assured confidence and faith that God will be with us. He'll be our sufficiency. His presence will be near. And He will exalt Himself and gain honor and glory as we lean on Him and seek Him as our refuge and our strength in every circumstance of life. Psalm 46 is a song of faith for tough times and hard circumstances. It was Luther's favorite song. Martin Luther used this as the basis for the Reformation anthem, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. And why is that? We will not fear because this God, and there is no other, is with us. Amen. Amen. Fathers, we bow this closing moment and the closing Sunday, 2007. We are indeed grateful for incredible goodness and kindness and mercy poured out upon us this past year. And Father, out of that knowledge and out of that assurance and out of the assurances of this text today, we commit our lives afresh to you and pray that you would be pleased to magnify yourself in all of our lives in this coming year. Open our eyes, O God. Illumine our understanding. Help us to feel the good of these truths. For Christ's honor, for Christ's sake. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen.